Well, friends, would you take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to Acts chapter 2. We're going to be considering verses 42 to 47. And before we read the Word of the Lord together, let us pray again and ask the Lord to help us understand His Word. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you tell us in your word that this word is light and life for our souls, that it is the bread that we need. It is the means that you use to feed us. And Lord, we ask that your spirit would be at work as we read your word, that we would inwardly digest what your word is feeding to our souls. Use the very word of God to transform our minds and bring us into a greater knowledge and a greater conformity to the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in His name that we pray. Amen. Well, if you're able, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Again, Acts 2, starting in verse 42. And we read, And they, that is the whole church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Well, this is God's holy word. Brethren, please be seated. As we come to our text this morning, Luke is making a transition from a snapshot of one extraordinary day in the life of the church, Pentecost, and Peter preaching and thousands converted, to a general, somewhat ordinary description of life in the church on a day-to-day basis. Now, not everything, of course, even in this description of the daily life of the church, is to be replicated in the church throughout all the ages. It's still a unique time, we might say, of the apostolic gifts, where the new revelation from God explaining the work of Christ and who exactly He is, all of that Word is accompanied by attesting miracles. You saw that in verse 43 where the apostles are doing miracles. And then there's a state of awe accompanying all that's going on, which gives the church a brief period without intense persecution. That's going to change soon, but right now the Lord is providing a season for growth. Nevertheless, Luke is summarizing the commitments of the early church for us, and it evidences a pattern for God's people throughout all time to emulate. How would the Lord have us function as a church? What is pleasing to Him as we move from the unique apostolic era to the ordinary life of God's people until Jesus comes back? Well, four things stand out in our text as the bedrock on which the church of Christ is built. We're introduced to those four things in verse 42 as a summary, and then verses 43 to 47 simply expand on that initial summary as to what it all looked like. So as we come to our text this morning, we're considering 
four things that characterize the church or a description of life together in the church. If God's Spirit is working in the church, what does the church do? What does a healthy Christ-centered church look like and how does she grow? Well, four things we're going to see together, and I'm being real novel in my points. Uh, They're just going to follow what we see in verse 42. But first, I want you to see with me, teaching, teaching. Fresh off the addition of 3,000 souls to that initial 120 believers who had been gathered in the upper room, Luke now explains how these early Christians lived together. And he starts, if you notice in verse 42, with a verb that applies to all the things we're going to consider. Look at the text again with me. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now what's meant here by the language they devoted themselves? Many of us probably could describe what devotion looks like. But the basic meaning of this verb is the entirety of the group, the whole church, they all persisted at or engaged in the constant duty of these four things. They diligently occupied themselves with these matters, and that's captured by the translation devotion. That is a a fierce loyalty to these practices that mark not only their public gathering, but their day-to-day lives. More specifically, we can say the believers were giving close and continual focus to these four matters. And what are they focused on in the first place? Well, that persistent attention is preeminently given to the apostles' teaching. Now, It's not always important to know when you have a list like this what comes first, but here I think it most certainly is. The chief characteristic of the early church and should be the church throughout all ages is a commitment to the Word. It's no accident that that's first. How is it the Lord brought these souls to life? It was through the Word. You remember how Peter puts this in 1 Peter 1? You've been born again of imperishable seed through the living and abiding Word of God. Or a verse that many of you probably could quote by now. Romans 10.17 Faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of Christ. The Word of God is bringing life to the church. But the Word isn't only the means to give the spiritual life, to create new birth, we might say. That same Word is also the means to nourish life so that we might grow up in salvation. Again, I think Peter helpfully puts it this way. The Word which birthed you must be craved like pure spiritual milk. Because the Word is the means by which you grow up in salvation. Or to put it differently, it is the means of putting on spiritual muscle. There was something we were all captured with um, maybe a couple of generations back about milk does the body good. You remember those commercials? And how you know the dairy farmers figured out a way to make you want to buy milk. It's good for you to drink from a cow. We're going to tell you all about it and how you're going to envy those who have the milk and you don't have it. Word does, uh, milk does the body good. Well, a spiritual milk does the soul good. And what is that spiritual milk? It is the Word of God. 
Jesus had prayed with respect to the sanctifying of His people that His Word was the instrument. Sanctify them in your truth. Your Word is truth, He prayed for His apostles. Well, now the church being taught by the apostles are being sanctified by the same means. Your Word is the truth that sanctifies. So these believers occupied themselves. They gave close attention to the apostles' teaching. They craved the Word, gladly putting themselves under the teaching of Christ's leaders so that they would grow. They would grow up in grace. That they would understand and they would know Christ. They would see the privileges that Jesus has bestowed upon them. And you get a sense here, in view of this devotion, that they didn't take preaching for granted. They didn't simply show up and hear preaching because they were supposed to. They understood as Moses had taught, the Word is our life. Or as Jesus once put it, the Word is the bread to sustain the soul. The Gospel is the power of God unto salvation. This is the way we're being saved as we give attention to the Word of His cross. Brethren, is this how we see it? Are we hungry for the Word? As apostolic doctrine, the faith once delivered to the saints is set before us, can it be said that we are devoted to it. What does devotion look like? Well, it looks like a yearning to be taught so that you come to hear the Word with diligence and preparation and prayer as our catechism puts it. That you are wanting to take every thought and make it captive to Christ, to His Word. It looks like a readiness to welcome the Word, to take it in, to commit the truth to your heart so that the Word dwells richly in your soul. This is not a disinterested listening. It's an attention to the shepherd's voice. If you knew today that Jesus Christ was going to speak to you, would you come and would you give close attention to what He says? Well, if you love Christ, you would. But brethren, that's what's going on. The Word of Christ is addressing our hearts and it's to clear away the distractions of life and make us to see there's one thing necessary. Remember the Martha Mary passage? Martha's concerned about all the things to do. Jesus tells her that that thing, the one thing that's necessary will not be taken away from Mary. The one thing necessary is to sit at the feet of our shepherd and to take in His Word. Are we doing that? Are we hanging on the instruction which is going to promote our joy, foster the killing of sin, set our hearts on the things above, show us the privileges we've been given in Christ, and produce fruit? Do we crave the Word? Now as we see this commitment to the Word of the apostles, we might wonder, what exactly were they being taught? Well, Peter's previous sermon and the rest of the sermons in this book, I think give us a good idea. In a word, I can tell you, they learned Christ. Who He is as the God-man, what He has done. And Peter's sermon on Pentecost had focused on these very things. On the fact that Jesus is the God-man. He is the Christ. And then he explained from the Old Testament how Jesus is the greater David to come. He's the King who reigns over all. And He is Lord. Further, Peter explained a little of the work of Christ. That forgiveness of sins is found in His name. Now, Peter didn't go into depths here. But it's imperative, isn't it? 
that the church learn of Christ's substitutionary atonement. How He bore our sins in His body on the tree. And why did He do it? To release us from sin's tyranny. To satisfy the justice of God. To constitute us as righteous in God's sight by covering us with the righteousness of Jesus. God made Him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in Him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. And then there was a call to respond, to repent and believe in view of these truths. The apostles further would have taught how Jesus is the fulfillment of the whole Old Testament. All of God's promises are yes and amen in Him. And just as Jesus instructed the apostles, starting with Moses, moving through the prophets and the writings or the Psalms, so the apostles would have taught all the ways in which we're seeing Christ in the Old Testament and recognizing the fulfillment. Saying, look, don't you see? God has kept His Word. He's been faithful to His covenant. You can count on everything He teaches you. But they wouldn't have stopped there. Peter's sermon, you remember perhaps, also talked in Trinitarian terms. Peter spoke about God's sovereignty ruling over even the wicked actions of men who crucified Christ. They killed Christ and they're guilty, but they only fulfill God's plan. The Father is the prevailing sovereign and He rules over every detail of life. Do you realize how comforting that truth is? The world's not spinning out of control because even in the most horrific thing that could ever happen, the Son of God being crucified, the Father's purposes are going forward. Do you understand that the Father is the architect of redemption? The one working all things according to the counsel of His will. And they would have pressed these things to the believer's heart. They would have taught them that the Father and the Son are co-equal in power and glory because the Father pours out the Spirit and the Son pours out the Spirit. And then only by means of the Spirit is the curse reversed. He brings life from the dead. He applies Christ's work to the heart so that we put off our sin and follow Christ. Now I'll take the time to point out a few of these particulars, and I know you know I'm not being exhaustive, just to emphatically stress the significance here of doctrine in the life of the church. John Calvin once said that doctrine is the soul of the church. Or Christianity, as J. Gresham Machen once put it, is a life, yes, but it's first a doctrine. It's what we believe about the Bible, about God, about sin, about Christ, about the church. The church, you see, brethren, is devoted to doctrinal instruction. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed, right? It's inspired by God. Unto what end? To do what? It's profitable for Doctrine for teaching. That's the first order. This is what you must believe. And we have to attend carefully to the Word of God and all that it teaches about who our God is, about Christ, about the work of the Spirit. Because you cannot have a legitimate profession of faith if there's no understanding of God's gift in His Son Jesus Christ and what Jesus did on the cross to satisfy God's justice. Now, it's often been said in the last, I don't know, 30, 40 years, maybe longer. I'm sure longer. Doctrine divides, but love unites. Therefore, the implication drawn from that statement, 
His doctrine should be minimized, maybe even marginalized, and love magnified. But hear me carefully. Love to a nebulous, undefined, unscriptural Jesus is not love at all. It's idolatry. The moment you say, I believe in Jesus, I have to ask, in whom is the Jesus that you believe? What do you believe about Him? Are you listening to God's Word about what it says concerning the Son? Or are you believing in something as you've defined it? Is He your Jesus? Or is He the Jesus that exists? (laughs) Doctrinal instruction, dear friends, is the first priority of the church's life. And don't we see this as the apostles start writing letters to the churches? How are those letters constructed? They are front-loaded with doctrine, with explanations of our God and our salvation in Christ. So I bring you back to some original questions. Are we attentive to doctrine? Do we devote ourselves to the public teaching of Christ's servants? You might say, well, I'm here, aren't I? I'm listening to you right now. Well, that shows an outward focus, sure, but the real question is, are you taking the doctrine to heart so that your mind is transformed in light of the truth? And then notice here, the public role for teaching. We're told, verse 46, that day by day the brethren were attending the temple together. It's a public pattern of life. What's that mean with respect to doctrine? It means they were being taught publicly as they gathered at the temple for worship. Now, I'm sure that that teaching spilled over as they also gathered in homes. Indeed, it's unrealistic to think that teaching only occurred when they all gathered together. Paul's pattern of instruction to teach publicly and from house to house seems modeled on what the apostles were doing right here. So we can truly say that the early church was a word-centered church. They wanted it daily. You know, it's interesting if we were to survey the landscape of churches today and compare it to the thriving situation of Acts 2. Churches, generally speaking, are word light. They don't commit to reading the the Scriptures. Sermons often don't adequately exegete the Scripture. And they certainly don't get more than one sermon on a Sunday because Sunday evening worship has all but died in most quarters. There's a lot of talk about Jesus in the worship service, but there's little explanation as to who He is and what He's done. But what is the apostolic pattern? Those things can't be missing. You must demand the Word like newborn babies, Peter says. What happens when a newborn doesn't get the milk he wants? He cries, and his cries are getting louder and louder and louder until you give him what he wants. That is the way to devote ourselves to public teaching. We must demand it. We must persistently seek it and hunger for it. Brother, may we never tire of this kind of devotion because this is what pleases the Lord. Teaching, but then secondly, see, fellowship. Verse 42 again, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and literally to the fellowship. There's a lot of discussion among commentators is what's meant here by the fellowship. It's that Greek word most of you know, koinonia. Because the word can mean several things. It can mean simply sharing in alms, as in the giving of money to others. 
It can mean relieving one another generally in outward things, not just giving money, but sharing in goods. It can mean a recognition of a broad social connection, like when Peter, James, and John give Paul the right hand, not not the left, the right hand of Christian fellowship. And then it can mean specifically a depth of relationship, as though we're in the tightest possible connection with mutual love and support in prayer and a readiness to serve. So which is it? Yes. It's all the above. Look at how this plays out. Verse 44 elaborates on this fellowship. That all who believed were together. Close association. It's as though they constituted a single household, for they had all things in common. Now think about the logistics of this. 3,000 plus people who've been converted couldn't always be together. But we understand that Luke is communicating a unity of affection and purpose. We might put it this way. They had a sense of a family feeling among them. They wanted closeness. They believed they belonged to one another and they needed tight friendship. So they acted with the intimacy of a family. And it will be no surprise as we keep moving forward in the Scripture that familial language is used to describe one another. Brother and sister. And the apostles calling those hearing their ministry beloved children or little children. The Spirit of God produces unity and attachment to one another. A desire to be together. Brethren, is that our desire? Do we want to be with the people of God? Is it moving past just the fact that we show up at the same place on Sunday, but we actually want to be around one another, want to spend time together? Does it spill over into our day-to-day lives? You can't have this kind of closeness unless you pursue it. And that's the idea here is they were devoted to it. But a practical application, you can't have this kind of closeness. As as soon as the service is over, you're gone. You have no connection. Or there's not a willingness to bring one another into a connection in the midst of the week. Is that what we're ready to do? Because this is what pleases the Lord. This is the normal pattern of Spirit-filled ministry in the life of the church. Additionally, these people wanted closeness and connection but we see that they actually cared for one another in very practical ways. Look at verse 44. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now some have tried to argue that this verse teaches that Christians live in a commune-like setting with no personal property. Others have made it sound like this is a communistic philosophy with no personal property wealth. Both of those are false understandings. Because when we keep reading Acts, particularly chapters 4 and 5, we see that the people were giving willingly, by no constraint whatsoever. They absolutely could have kept their property. They're choosing to sell it. And this will be what gets Ananias and Sapphira. They could have kept stuff back, but they didn't and then they lied about it. The action here is voluntary as they support one another in much the same way that a family would bear one another's burdens. 
So this devotion to fellowship meant that the believers were willing to ensure that no one among them had any need. We might say we can find in their hearts a superabundance of selflessness. It's not just that they got together and gave to a benevolent fund in a formal gathering like an offering. I'm sure they did that. That will become a pattern of the church. Paul will tell the church at Corinth, when you assemble on the first day of the week, take up a collection. So that will be a pattern. But it went beyond just taking up money as they gathered for worship. Their care went on to the sharing of goods. It seems that they shared their homes, shared their food, shared their clothing, shared everything that they had when a need arose. Now, what enduring principle are we to take away from this practice of the early church? Well, simply put, I think we can say this is love in practice. Love in practice. What must characterize the church is a true love for one another, but not just talking about love, love that does things. Do you remember in James chapter 2 when James is talking about what true faith looks like? You don't say to your brother in need, go in peace, be warm and filled. No, you give your brother what is needed for the body. Otherwise, your faith is dead. If we're not devoted to one another in brotherly love, then our faith is in question. Doesn't Jesus make this abundantly clear in His the least of these, my brethren, parable? Matthew 25. Whatever is done unto the least of these, that's not talking about ministering to people in the world, whatever is done to the least of these, my brethren, that thing is done as it's done unto Jesus. We're connected in Christ. Or to use Paul's language in 1 Corinthians 12, we are members of the same body so that we have the same care for one another. When one member suffers, we suffer with them. When one member rejoices, we rejoice with them. And we're ready to do this. There's a devotion to one another, to relieving each other in need. Devotion to the Word without a devotion to loving each other in the body is a total misunderstanding of the Gospel. In fact, it's only as we learn that we're doctrinally attached to Christ and thereby attached to one another that we're made God's household, that we're made fellow citizens together with the saints, that we're made a holy temple growing up into the Lord, it's only as we understand that that we actually engage in living like it. Now, beloved, our church, not without flaws, sure, but our church has always been recognized as a loving church. A church that supports one another in need. You know, the most amazing testimony that we could have last week when we had this celebration, we saw people come literally from all over the United States to be with us. Why do you think they want to come back and hang out with you? Because they love you. And they felt loved while they were here. That is a mark of this church. That we have love not just in theory, but in day-to-day practice. I've been a part of a lot of churches in, in my life. And this is by far the most loving church I have ever seen. But every, every church where love is already present needs to continue to advance. Paul will say this to the Thessalonians. He'll say, look, I, already, I know you love one another, but may that love abound. And he prays for them. May the Lord make you increase 
and abound in love for one another. That your love would spill over. What a great prayer. Lord, how can my love spill over more and more for your people? How can we show greater selflessness in the serving of one another? God's Word has a lot to say about considering one another. Noticing need. Being eager to give. And even if you have no money, are you eager to give your time, your energy, your very lives in mutual affection? Are we working to build a family feeling in our church with hospitality? Sharing in our stuff? You know, one thing that COVID did amongst us is it killed hospitality. It absolutely killed it. And our church hasn't recovered from the level of hospitality we practiced prior to COVID to what we now practice. You can't let that happen. Why? Look at what the early church is doing. Verse 46, day by day, they're breaking bread in their homes. Hospitality is the practical overflow of love to one another. It's what a Spirit-filled, healthy church does. Well, are we seeking to do it? And notice, they did this joyfully. We're going to get a command in 1 Peter about practicing hospitality and not doing it begrudgingly. Do it joyfully. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, verse 47, praising God. Are we sharing with joy? Are we praising God in all things, in our fellowship together? When we recognize love so great has come to us to cleanse us of our sin, love has been so profound to lavish grace on us who are former enemies, raising us to new life, how should not we be quickly ready to give our love to one another? Indeed, shouldn't we remind ourselves when there's one in need among us, this is one that Christ loved. Shall I withhold from Him? Shall I not give because I'm loving Christ as I love this one? Let us do it more and more. Commitment to teaching and to fellowship. Third, we see the Lord's Supper. Verse 46, we read of the breaking of bread in homes, a readiness to share meals. But back in verse 42, in Luke's language, we are told that the brethren devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Now what your ESV uh, leaves out is a really important word, the, which is in this text. The breaking of the bread. Which is suggesting not the breaking of bread in general as in their homes, but a breaking of a particular bread. And most commentators recognize this is most likely speaking of the Lord's Supper. For this is how Luke will talk later in Acts 20 of the practice of the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16, when talking about the Lord's Supper, Paul will say, the, the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Indeed, it's fitting that the mention of the Lord's Supper comes right after fellowship. Because as we share the one bread, we're both fellowshipping in Christ's death and resurrection, and we're fellowshipping together. You understand the Lord's Supper is not just remembering that Jesus died and it was for us. We're actually drawing strength from Christ in that moment. We're participating in the blessings He purchased for us. Sharing in His fellowship that He might strengthen us to persevere until we reach glory. You see, the early church shared in this sacred supper 
And as they did it, they made it clear they were not ashamed to own Christ as their Redeemer. It won't be long before the church are being called cannibals because they talk about feasting on the Lord Jesus. It's a total misunderstanding, of course. But if the pagan world knows you're doing something regularly, they're noticing. And that's what's going on here. As the people recognize we're dependent on the Lord for empowerment. Now I should note, this devotion to the Lord's Supper does not specifically say that they had the Lord's Supper at every meeting of the church. But the idea of being devoted to it clearly gives you a notion of frequency, doesn't it? Well, let me put it this way. How often do you need to be reminded of heaven that we eat this bread until He comes? How often do we need to experience His strengthening power? How often do we need to renew our covenant with Christ and pledge to Him again that we rest in Him? How often do we need the tangible picture, the sensible sign that we're sustained only by Christ and we live by His life? The Lord's Supper will mean more to us if we take more time to consider the spiritual blessings that are offered in it. But of course, you know, you can have the Lord's Supper frequently and fail to be devoted to it. This church was diligently giving themselves to the Lord's Supper. Brethren, we'll have it tonight. And what a blessing it is. Let us be careful to prepare our hearts to commune with Christ through this sacred meal driven by the Word to want more of Jesus. And that's the pattern here, don't you see? The devotion to the Supper isn't divorced from a devotion to the Word. Because only the Word gives the Supper meaning. Only the Word explains what the actions of the Lord's Supper mean. If all we had were the actions of the Lord's Supper, it would be mysticism. But we don't have that. The Word tells us what it means and why it's important. Well, let us hold to the Word and the sacrament. Because this is how the church grows. And then finally, see with me. Prayer. Like the specific reference to the breaking of the bread, the devotion of the church was also literally to the prayers. Now this language suggests set times of prayer. And as we keep reading our section, verse 46, it was the pattern of the people to go to the temple together. And then chapter 3, verse 1, Peter and John are going up to the temple when they meet a lame man. But when were they going up? It was at the hour of prayer. You see, at the temple, there were stated times of prayer. Now, their prayers wouldn't have been limited to public prayer at the temple, sure. The church, verse 46, as they gathered in the homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, which indicates they're acknowledging it as a gift. They were glad. They're praising God. So they're thanking the Lord in their homes. But the devotion in verse 42, I think, focuses chiefly on public or corporate prayer on a larger scale. They were having large prayer gatherings, eager to praise the Lord and lay their needs before Him. Indeed, we should note the literal language here of devotion to the prayers, plural, suggests not only stated times of prayer, but specific rather than general praying. We might think of the prayers as consisting in the diet of prayer associated with daily worship in the temple. What do I mean by the diet of prayer? Well, the different kinds of prayers. Prayers of adoration, 
prayers of confession, prayers of supplication, prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of petition. And what's interesting, as with the decline of the Word in modern day churches, fewer services, less reading of the Bible, there's also been a radical decline of the prayers in the church. Sometimes in modern churches, there's scarcely any prayer at all. Maybe there's a prayer at the start. Maybe there's some prayer associated with the needs of the church. But the full diet of biblical prayer, a devotion to prayer, is missing. Adoration is thin. Confession is almost non-existent. Supplications might be present, but there's actually little crying out for spiritual growth, for sanctification, which is always the priority of prayer in Scripture, and then you get the famous organ recital. Everybody's physical ailments. It's not you shouldn't pray for that, but it shouldn't be the priority. But where are the expressions of thanks to God for His gifts? Where's the eruption in praise to the Lord for who He is and what He's done? Where are the pleadings with the Lord to illumine the text and make us understand? Because we have no power to do that in ourselves. The natural man can't understand the things that come from the Spirit. Where are the earnest pleadings to pray in the sermon? These things are often missing. And worse than that, maybe, the regularity of set times of prayer has almost entirely vanished. Part of the recovery of biblical worship and biblical church life at the Reformation, which was only looking back to Scripture in the early church, it wasn't only a recovery of the Word. It was a recovery of prayer. More devotion to prayer in the service and prayer in the church's life. Why do we pray so much here at Grace Presbyterian Church in the middle of our service? Have you ever noticed that? You probably have. We pray at the start. We pray a prayer of confession. We pray a pastoral prayer. We pray a prayer of illumination. We pray again at the end. Why are we praying so much? Because we're called to be devoted to it. We can't do anything apart from the Lord. Are we evidencing that as we come to worship? And then just what about the church gathering to pray in general? In 1541, under the influence of John Calvin, the city of Geneva established, listen carefully, Wednesday meetings for prayer. Did you know the prayer meeting went back to Calvin's Geneva? And part of this pattern of midweek set times of prayer, this, this notion of the church needs to gather to pray, maybe on Wednesday night, and that seems to be typically what happened, that permeated the Protestant world. You didn't have to be Presbyterian This was all over the landscape of churches for centuries. And then about 50 to 75 years ago, it just died, totally vanished. Is that okay? No. Beloved, what is the Lord saying here is pleasing to Him? What is a flourishing, Spirit-filled church doing? They are devoting themselves to prayer. I challenge you fellows, to, to, if you're married, to go home tonight or this afternoon with your wife and to say, you know, I'm going to be devoted to you, but I'm only going to talk to you once a week. <clears throat> Let me t- tell me how that goes. <laughs> These people had a habit of gathering for prayer. 
And when trouble came upon the church, and it eventually will, in chapter 4, Peter and John have been um, challenged by the Sanhedrin for their preaching, called to give an account. In chapter 12, when James has been beheaded and Peter's imprisoned, what did the church do? They called a prayer meeting. What was the church doing before the Holy Spirit fell on Pentecost? They were in the upper room devoting themselves to prayer. They have multiple prayer meetings. And that wasn't on Sunday. This was in addition to a regular meeting. On occasions, do you see, the church is showing themselves with a fervent commitment to prayer. And I ask you simply, is this our commitment? Can it be said that we as a church are devoted to the prayers, to bringing all kinds of petitions and praises to our God together? This pleases the Lord. This passage is giving us an outline of life in the church, what it should be like. And what happens as this church in the early church here is devoted to these ordinary things, the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, the loving of one another, to the Lord's Supper, remembering Christ's death, and to praying. What happens? End of verse 47. Look at it. We close with this. And we read, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The language here indicates that the Lord is king and the Lord is saving sinners. We aren't doing it. The Lord is doing it. He's adding to His church. But He's doing it as outsiders observe life in the church. Their love for the Word and their love for one another and their commitment to cry out to God. In other words, as the church worshipped earnestly and loved one another fervently, the Lord grew His church. The pagans saw their devotion to Christ and to their fellow believer, and they were drawn to it. Brother, may God do that thing among us. Do you know how amazing it is when an unbeliever can get a sense that a church really loves one another and they just want to be a part of it? Or the way little things happen, like, I hate to point her out, but when we prayed on Wednesday night that baby Lamont would turn, and what happened? The Lord answered prayer. What a greater bolster to your faith do you need? And I could tell you story after story after story after story of that happening in our church, or Shelley Chittam, whose COVID lungs suddenly are better and even better than they were beforehand. Why? Because we prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. What a testimony. Why do you want to miss that? I know, I know some of you have providential hindrances. I'm not trying to get on your case. But if you're able to be with a gathered church in prayer, what a blessing. This is what the church does. And it's a practical way to love one another. May we show that we're not walking around with big swollen heads because we know a bunch of stuff. May our devotion to the Word engage in loving one another practically, bringing one another into our homes, delighting in our assembly where we celebrate the supper, and praying and praying and praying. And God will bless that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You give us the simple way that the church grows these, what are often called ordinary means of grace, but function, in essence, in extraordinary ways. Lord, You are an amazing God. And we thank You that You give us careful, practical instruction as to what, we're be doing, what we are to be doing. Help us not to be distracted 
by a thousand other matters that we forget our priorities. Hear us as we pray these things, for we ask it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of God's people said, Amen.